1: I'm good. Maybe I should just stop now, but then your ego or something gets in the way and then you continue on and then you're like, you know, whack. And then you're like, oh, I broke my collarbone, or oh, I broke my leg, or that's where we shine is when we're humble and we're realistic about our position in the universe. But the simplest way to word it really is be in the now. So if there's no beginning and no end, then there's just the now. I'm participating me the the dust me the the insignificant is actually participating in riding energy i mean it's pretty pretty fantastic
0: What's up guys, Xavier Katana here and wow, what an episode with legendary big wave surfer Lared Hamilton. Just an information packed episode about being in high performance states and we get into flow state, we get into performance, we get into supplements and just how to keep your body in this rhythm of being able to achieve these amazing states. So everything that you would want to know from someone who has been in those states thousands of times, So hopefully you guys enjoy this one. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is in session. My guest for today is Mr. Lared Hamilton. Lared, my good sir, it's an honor. Welcome to the human experience.
1: Well, I just want to say thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's my honor.
0: So... Laird, I mean you you made such a, a wide-ranging impact on the world of surfing. And you know, I've studied your career and I know who you are, but for anyone who might not know who you are, can you just give us a short biography, please?
1: Well, I am uh Laird Hamilton and I was uh, a poor young man in Hawaii, a uh, rough life. I'm considered to be a waterman, which just means that you are multi-skilled in disciplines of the ocean and of the water and you have an understanding of uh of its workings and i you know was raised in hawaii at some of the most rugged surf breaks in the world and all the people that i looked up to were were great watermen fishermen divers and surfers Mm and and the greatest of these and the ones that i had the most respect for were the men that rode the giant waves and and so that that impact on my life made me become a rider of giant waves and always in pursuit of riding giant waves. And in through that process, I've been involved with windsurfing and kiting and kind of been involved in the innovation of kiting, of foil surfing, um, of uh, stand-up paddling, of a, a technique called tow in surfing, which allows us to ride some of the biggest waves in the world. And the list keeps going. Yeah,
0: it's it's really profound, this connection that you've made with the ocean. It's not a sense of control because you're not controlling the waves. When did you find out that surfing was going to be this huge thing for you?
1: Well, I, I think I had the fortune to kind of know when I was very young that I was going to do something in surfing or surfing was going to do something in me. But there was this, you know, this connection that I had with this art and this, uh, element. And so it started very young. I'd say three or four years old, you know, I mean, I I think I was obnoxious as a young man, just, I would run around and first of all, I'd tell everybody who my stepdad was. He was, uh, you know, a great surfer and, and, uh, and then I would say I was going to be great. And they would just be like, Hey, would you just please shut up?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, you, you talk about your own philosophy regarding fear. How do you move through that? How do you move through this sense of fear when you have this 200-foot wave coming
1: at you? Well, I, I think the relationship that I have with fear and what fear has enabled me to do has come over a long period of time. I think I've developed a relationship with fear. I think I, growing up, I think I was scared so often that I became pretty uh versed at being scared and through that I think it gave me an ability to learn how to harness it I think you know that fear as an energy source is a very powerful thing and so the when you have the ability to use fear as energy it makes you strong it makes you fast it makes you make really good decisions um, it's 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 something to uh, respect and, and appreciate and so you know, Again, I think I've developed a relationship with fear. I've learned how to harness it and use it as, a, as, a, as an energy source. And, and it's brought me uh, incredible uh, rewards.
0: So I just want to feel this with you because when you're approaching a wave of that size or you're assessing you know, where you're going to enter and how you're going to logistically plan riding this wave, I mean, what's going through your mind when you do that?
1: it's a pretty methodical process. It's, it's something that you, first of all, you're pulling from years and years and years of experience. You know, you're pulling from 30, 40, 50,000 hours of experience. Um, you're using all of that data to help you make the the right approach, make the right plan. You know, the one thing about, the ocean and waves that keeps you kind of always on guard is that there's never two moments that are the same. And I think that my respect and my fear for these uh, beasts, that respect and that fear forces me into a very consistent approach, yet with always the preparation that stuff happens. And so I always say there's only three ways you can go about doing anything that's real dangerous. and You know, one of them is denial, one of them is ignorance, and the other one is operating within your experience. And most of the time, it's kind of some kind of combination of all three of those. So you come in kind of experience, you have a little bit of denial and and a little bit of ignorance or, you know, however it's going to be. But I I approach this real mathematically. And then I use instinct to guide. You know, I use instinct as as a guide when, you know, when something just isn't right. Go with that, feel that, use that skill that we've mm-hmm. developed yeah. you know, to survive.
0: Yeah, so you mean that that when you feel something wrong, you kind of eject out of that. and You're just you follow that feeling.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well or I go into high caution. Okay. So I'll go into a high caution mode, like, hey, you know what, I'm a little thumbs up, I'll go into high caution and that served me well. And so I heed those those warnings.
0: Has there been a time where You've been in that situation and maybe you didn't follow that instinct. Maybe you didn't follow that little warning and you were in a situation where it got dangerous.
1: Well, yeah, more than once. Usually it results in some sort of injury. So, I mean, you just kind of go, hey, you know what? I'm good. Maybe I should just stop now. But then your ego or something gets in the way and then you continue on and then you're like, you know, whack. And then you're like, oh, I broke my collarbone or, oh, I broke my leg or you know, and you but yet if you would have just heated those internal warnings sooner, you would have. you wouldn't have, uh, you know, the unconscious mind moves at 32,000 times the speed of the conscious mind, which which technically means that it can almost, you know, kind of see the future. And so in a way, you know, those instincts and those feelings come from the unconscious. You can develop a relationship with your conscious mind when you heed those warnings and those little deja vus or whatever you want to call them that come up. and. Cross over that plane yeah you know that's, that's where you're able to start to kind of create a, a better connection between that unconscious warning system survival system that moves at such a higher rate yeah. as the slower you know cognitive conscious mind
0: yeah that's very profound i really like that a lot you know i'm sure you are aware of what flow state is right being in flow You know, is there a process that you use? I mean, when you're in the middle of a pipe and you're just, you're riding that wave, what's happening with time? And does time slow down? Does it speed up? Do you feel like you have more time? Does everything kind of move in slow motion? How does that work?
1: Well, there's an expansion of time that occurs when you're in that moment. I mean, you know, I describe sometimes the act of riding a wave As a place where there is no beginning and there is no end, it just is. And you leave off where you left off and you start where you, you know, you left off. I think that there's something about that that keeps us coming back for more, that we really desire that state. But the simplest way to word it really is be in the now. So if there's no beginning and no end, then there's just the now. So if the riding a wave is actually being in the now, yet you're in movement. It's something very special. There's something, you know, very unique about that sensation that really keeps us coming back for more. I mean, we, you know, design our lives around this this desire for this state. Yes, yes,
0: definitely. There's such a large aspect of surrender. I remember looking at these images of you on these, these massive, just... Walls of water, and you're just this tiny little human being, and and it almost looks like you're making these brush strokes, you know, on this this canvas that that is the ocean. Does surrender play into this? Just letting go of your ego, letting go of those things.
1: Well, it's all about submission. It's all about surrender. It's all about being at the mercy. And it's really, it, it's when we are at our best, right? We're at our best when we are. Humble and proper perspective of what we really are, which is dust in the wind. At the end of the day, that's where we shine is when we're humble and we're realistic about our position in the universe. We're a particle, a very small particle. And so and when you come from that and you go, "Okay, I'm humble, I'm submitting and then you're able to be in this less humble more significant situation that's where the experience comes in that's the whole sensation is like i'm participating me the the dust me the the insignificant is actually participating in riding energy mm. i mean it's pretty pretty fantastic
0: <laughs> yeah i would say so um yeah, that's, that's such a beautiful way to put it into perspective. And just, um, you know, I, f- I feel like we, we walk around a lot with our egos kind of at the front of what we're doing. And when you're in a position like that, you get humbled very quick. So it's, it's difficult to not be in this sort of humble state, it forces you to be in this humble state when you're facing this, this force of nature coming at you. You created extreme performance training. You co-created this. Can you tell us a bit about you know what XPT is and how it works?
1: Well, XPT is a, a really a experiential uh, opportunity for people to participate in our lifestyle, but also be exposed to some information that has had impact on our lives, and some fitness techniques, and nutrition, and breathing, and thermal regulation, and some of these things that have had a profound effect on us. You know, we have experts. People can come for a two and a half day experience and kind of get a high impact version of our lifestyle, like where they get to come and, you know, and and take some stuff home with them that can have an impact on the way they live, how they live, you know, and what they live for and so on. And so it's a it's a way for us to share some of the information that has been shared with us. You know, it has a profound effect. I, I mean, every one of these XBT experiences that we've had, people walk away, change, and it has that same impact on us. And so we really enjoy putting them on. And every time we put on one, it seems like we we gain a few friends. I don't know if we're going to continue to be able to do that, but it, it, you know we can never have too many friends, and it's just great to see people. Being open and willing, it has a tendency to pull a really unique group of people that are really open and interested in in continuing to evolve um, as we are.
0: Breathing is a big part of XBT, right? In which way are we using breathing consciously to achieve this high performance state?
1: We're first of all, we're just giving breathing the credence or the respect that it deserves on the priority of existence. You know, you can live for you know a few weeks without eating you can live for a few days without drinking water and you can only live a few minutes without breathing so in in that state then where does breathing falls it seems like it falls is probably the most important thing that we do and then there's a relationship you know with the spirit and the breath you know there's indigenous tribes that call it the spirit of life um, That breath is the spirit of life it's about bringing consciousness to breath now as far as the experience goes I mean, we're going to do a bunch of different activities, and there'll be a multiple opportunities to do some breathing techniques that, that people will be able to implement into their own lives, into their fitness. Ultimately, the great thing about XBT is that it continues to evolve. So there's no set format. We, we not, it's not like we go, hey, this is calisthenics, and this is what you do, and this is how you do it, and then it's going to be, you know, if you've been to one class, you've been to them all. This is something that's always evolving, and it's going to continue to evolve. Um As we learn and, and, and we evolve, which hopefully is indefinite.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, Laird, I, I really want to talk about some of your personal battles, and you know, not on the ocean. We all have demons. We all have that that sort of dark passenger. I mean, has there been something like that in your life that you've had to sort of conquer and defeat?
1: There's a battle of the pole every day. I think that in life, you know there's the South Pole, the North Pole you know, we're like a battery. There's the, the negative and the positive. And, you know, what dominates the majority uh, of your thinking and the majority of your time spent doing? Now, is it in the negative or the positive? As long as the positive is more profound or, or having a bigger impact than the negative, you're all good. You know, I've been sober for 10 years. I, I used to love to drink, you know, a good Bordeaux. I love red wine. At a certain point, I just Thought you know nothing's good coming from this, you know. And where we say all the dumbest things I ever did were when I was drinking. So I'm no better or, or no different than any other person. I have all the desires that all people do, and I choose to go the direction I go. And those choices happen to be on the majority of the side positive. And so you know I've had family stuff growing up. I've had relation stuff being grown up i've had injury stuff and i must say that i've been through all the trials and tribulations that a human can go through because i haven't and i've been blessed and saved from a lot of a lot of grief but i have you know been through enough stuff to have had an opportunity to decide what way i want to go and i'm fortunate to be able to say that i try to continue to always choose the light you know choose the light keep focusing on the light and what you occupy your time with and what you choose will be the thing that dominates so if you're negative and it's all dark then don't be surprised if you know a lot of darkness is around you and if you're positive and you're choosing the light then don't be surprised if a lot of lights happening you know there's certain laws in the universe and and I'm fortunate to know this thing called instant karma where usually when I Think something bad or do something bad i pay instantly and has a tendency to make you learn quick or or maybe not but um, you know i choose to take those as lessons and try to make changes yeah
0: 100% agreed with that especially regarding just alcohol i personally i, I quit drinking myself and you know that's that's such a big change the, this, once we start to realize that alcohol is just a poison for the body i mean it Once you move away from it for a while, you realize how negative it is for you. There was this, there was an interview that you did, this article where you shared your 10 point plan to live forever. You know, was there one of those 10 points that kind of struck you the most? There's one where you talk about, you know, forget how old you are, um, taking care of everyday priorities. Is there one of those that kind of resonates more than the others?
1: I think, to retain your youthful enthusiasm. I think that, you know, that the key to the fountain of youth is to be a kid and to be excited and to be enthusiastic. I think as soon as you lose that, you're dead anyway. So, I mean, at a certain point, if you want to be alive while you're alive, then be alive and be excited and be enthusiastic. It doesn't mean every second don't be like Mr. Hey, smiley guy. I just meant find things that make you excited and be a kid and be willing to learn and try new stuff and don't care what people think of you. And I mean I think that really I mean listen you got to eat good. You got to have good relationships. You got to work out you got to I mean it's an endless list, right? And there's not any one spoke that makes the wheel round. It's all of them, right? So but but if you said hey, you know, what's one of the dominant spokes you know what's the hub you know I mean it says it in the good book. Just retain your youthful enthusiasm man. Be a all the older guys that I know that are young, they're all enthusiastic, excited. You know, they're retaining it.
0: You said something interesting about shoes in this in this conversation that you were having or this article that was published. You grew up barefoot in Hawaii, right?
1: First of all, we couldn't afford shoes. You didn't want to have shoes on in Hawaii anyway. Half the time I lost all my shoes. You know, I mean, when we did wear shoes, they were only slippers or thongs or whatever we want to call them. But. They weren't exactly a shoe all the studies are like hey we should all be barefoot and, and something about you know barefoot definitely connects you to the earth and you absorb negative ions through being barefoot and i mean uh, you know our feet were designed to be, you know pretty much uh, other than maybe a moccasin or something to keep your feet warm if you lived in the snow or something but you know your feet are you know it's a way to touch it's it's, it's how we touch and So in a way, if you you know if you're always insulated, you know how smooth is skin when you have a glove on. You know, it's like it's not that smooth.
0: (laughs) So, Laird, I mean, what has evolved for you? What has changed for you? I mean, you know, are you more patient when you're surfing? Are you more patient with it? And does that relate back to your own personal life? It's almost as if surfing is a type of philosophy, and it teaches you so much about life.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, all the the real lessons I've learned, the oceans taught me. I went to the school of ocean and there you learn, you know, the fundamentals of life. You learn humility and discipline and perseverance and fear. I mean, you learn, you want to talk about all the things you learn and, and all the important things you learn. They all, you know, and every great thing I've ever been gifted to me has come from the ocean. And whether it's things I've done in the ocean that have you know, gotten the gifts bestowed upon me or things I've learned from the ocean that has allowed me to be able to receive the things that I've been gifted. I mean, it just go, it doesn't end. But I think, you know, I, I don't consider myself a very patient person, but, you know, I had a writer once tell me, he goes, you know, you know, I realize that surfers are some of the most patient people in the world. And I just about fell out of my chair. I was like, you obviously don't <laughs> know me. But he said, you know, but you guys are willing to wait a lifetime for a moment. And I said, well, that's true. I mean, and we are, and we are genuinely willing to wait a lifetime for a moment. I mean, I would wait 50 years for an opportunity to, to, to ride a certain kind of wave. And I would prepare myself for 50 years to be able to ride that wave and, or be there for that moment. Um, and yet I, I think my children at this point are teaching me the other side of patience, which is with all of the small stuff and less selfishness and more selflessness, I definitely feel like the more you can take your feelings of accomplishment or your successes out of the hands of humans and put them in your own, the more successful you'll be and the more accomplished you'll be. You know, when you're young and aggressive and wanting to make prove yourself, you have one out of two. But then when you're, you know, a little more seasoned and a little more Experience and and a little more satisfied. You have to change your approach. And what I've learned is that the more I can continue to control my feeling of success, the more successful I'll be. If I have the ability to go out alone into the ocean and do something that brings me a feeling of accomplishment, and come back and then bring that feeling of accomplishment back to my house, um, the better a person I am. The better husband I am the better boyfriend I am the better father I am the better person I am and so now I try to pursue that now I spend a lot of time pursuing that ability and also to bring that feeling of success that I am learning how to bestow upon myself
0: yeah that's that, I mean, that's such a profound statement to you know be able to bring that back what you've learned back into your everyday life because. I mean, if you're this glory surf rider and you're just kind of just riding these waves, but everyone kind of thinks you're an asshole, I mean, what's the, what would be the point of that, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, well, we have a saying, we have a saying, right, in Hawaii, it's not who you are, it's how you are.
0: Yeah. You know, Melanie, one of our listeners submitted this question. She asks, when and where was the best ride of your life?
1: Just last week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The best ride is the last ride that was a good ride. So, I mean, you know, listen, I've had so many phenomenal rides. I mean, one of the most famous rides that I've ever had was one in Tahiti when, when I rode a, a wave at the time that, that was said to be uh, unrideable and impossible. Um, I've had incredible um, rides of my life uh, at a famous wave called Jaws. Uh, on Maui. Um, there's a famous stuntman that once said, you know, never let your memories be bigger than your dreams. So I don't dwell on the past, but I think I've had so many incredible rides um, in my lifetime. It's hard to say one was better than the other. It was just maybe they are just been all been equally great, just different. And, and there's been too many to even count. But I mean, I definitely have had some monumental moments you know at both in maui and tahiti but i did you know like i said literally i had a ride last week that was one of those special ones that i did you know i think it's about when you do something that you've never done i think each time you do that that's a monumental yeah. one yeah so uh, i know that wasn't the, the short answer but that's the only one i have
0: <laughs> no worries you know there's there's such a large philosophy behind all this and One of the anecdotes that I've heard about surfing is that when you start to panic, like let's say that you kind of eat a wave and and you're, you just, you crash out and you're under the water. If you panic in that moment, you only have like 10 to 15 seconds of air. But if you remain calm in that moment, you have up to a minute of air or longer.
1: That's a metaphor for life. Yeah. That's a metaphor for life.
0: So, I mean, do you, do you find that to be true? I mean, have you found that to be accurate in your experience?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think because I was in so many heavy situations from such a young age for so many times, you become very uh, knowledgeable about the liability of panic and that how panic Will undermine your ability to survive, and so panicking is a liability, and you learn that quick. And there's a time, there's a time to go all out and you know and give it your all at the potential cost of paying. You gain time by slowing down. It's just the irony of it, you know, that you think, well, if I speed up, I'll gain time, but you gain time by slowing down, and and then actually. There's a a strange phenomenon that occurs where when you have heightened awareness that you actually can speed up assessment and and that actually slows down time. It gives you time and all of a sudden the time expands because your assessment has sped up. And I describe it a little bit like making slow motion film where they speed the camera speed, the shutter speed up in order to create slow motion. Well, when you... Imagine assessment is shutter speed. So the quicker you can see, hear, listen, think, thing, and, and assess, the more time that you'll gain.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, there, there was an element of your career where you refused to compete professionally, and yet you dominated the industry. Why did you refuse to do this in a professional standard?
1: Well, the combination of a couple of different reasons, part of it was because when I grew up, I was exposed to kind of the injustice of judgment and surfing and that surfing is really art and it's self-expression. And I came from a generation um, at which surfing was still under more of an exploratory stage in its development. It hadn't been really corporatized. It hadn't been boxed up yet and they didn't have a, you know, the whole focus wasn't on the tour and that whole thing. And it was more like art. My stepdad was a phenomenal surfer. I watched him go through some real kind of trials and tribulations with participating in the structured uh, competitions. And I watched his fate be determined by other people that were probably not nearly as good a surfer as he was, but yet they were the so-called experts. And I decided at a young age that I wouldn't subject my performances to those people. And you know i played around when i was little in surfing competitions because it was fun it was with your friends you won some uh, some toys or whatever candy whatever a couple of t-shirts or something something fun there was an, and then when money came along and the whole thing changed it, it kind of had a tendency to make me aggressive which i think i was already naturally too aggressive i didn't need a reason to be more aggressive for me i think that aggression was a distraction from actually surfing you know, I told somebody, yeah, I think the reason why I never competed was because I'm too competitive. <laughs> I always thought I'll go my route, which is if I'm the best surfer in the biggest and heaviest conditions, and that kind of pretty much takes care of itself. I don't need to have anybody determine whether I'm great or not. If I can if I'm doing things no one else is doing or performing in a way in the in what I consider the heaviest conditions, then that kind of puts me on my own platform. And ultimately, people go, "Well, how did you do that? You know you know you're a basketball player, but somehow you're not playing in the NBA. And I just explained that normally, you know, an athlete is sponsored or they get paid because they're getting exposure. they're on TV every night, and they're you know so the, so they get paid because they get seen. And so, but I, because of the nature of the things that I was able to do and have done, that got me a lot of exposure. So I just kind of bypassed the middle part, which is I didn't need a platform. Wow. Um, I was able to go directly to the to the exposure side, which led to sponsorships and other things like that. I always say, I you know, I hate to be told what to do. I don't want to be told when to go in the water and when to come in. I want to feel it, go when I want to, perform how I want to. And Then I think with that format, it, it allowed me to maybe do things and perform in a way that was much more true to myself, and and at the end, really allowed me to go to higher levels of performance, and maybe much higher than I would have ever ever been able to had I been in a competitive environment.
0: Hey guys, you have been listening to the Human Experience and our episode with Mr. Laird Hamilton. To listen to the rest of this episode, get to humanxpcom slash members you can go there and you'll have access to the full library of content that we have for our members only and you can hear the rest of this interview with larry where he talks about his own personal routine and his own personal dealings with uh, you know his every day and it's really important to get that aspect of it you help support this show you help support what we're doing here and this way we don't have to deal with you know sponsors and stuff so Become a member at humanxp.com slash members Thank you so much for listening.